Uh, I'm glad you're with us. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. And uh, as uh, if you uh, need a Bible, you should find one down uh, in one of the chair racks around you. But uh, the book of Acts, as I mentioned uh, last week, is a report on what was happening in the lives of the first followers of Jesus. And one of the things that this report tells us, and uh, certainly history affirms, is that the early church um, had a huge spiritual impact on the people around her. I mean, the church turned its neighborhood, its city, its culture, uh, and eventually the world upside down, changed it, uh, changed it forever. And that happened not by Christians out strategizing other religions or out arguing their critics, but by out loving, out serving, and really out giving them, all by the grace and power of God. And um, here in chapter 4 of the report, uh, we're given a description uh, of what the church's kind of upside-down loving generosity looked like in, in very practical terms, day-to-day terms, really. In verse 32, we're told this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Here's my personal reiki summary of what was happening in the first century. The outrageous generosity of the early church, it was like, a, it was like an engine driving a spiritual dynamic that carried an irresistible appeal to and tremendous influence on its surrounding culture. Uh, if you notice in verse 31, we're told that believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Verse 33, we're told the apostles continued to testify uh, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, i.e. the truth of the gospel of grace was being, uh, being proclaimed through teaching, but at the same time it was being authenticated by the otherwise unexplainable generosity uh, of these Christians. And uh, the community around them saw how they were living, how they were sharing, what they were doing. It was a little confusing for, uh, for outsiders, and, and yet they were impressed and they wanted to know, uh, you know the how and why of it all. And so when the leaders uh, of the church and those in the church actually spoke of Jesus, people listened. And many people responded by placing their faith in him. But here's the thing. The, uh, the outrageous generosity of, of the church didn't end in Jerusalem. But it went on to characterize Christianity as it spread throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, Julian, uh, who was essentially the last pagan emperor of Rome, hated Christianity. He wanted to destroy it uh, and revive paganism. But uh, he, he knew that Christianity flourished under martyrdom. And so he took sort of a nonviolent approach to try and stamp it out. He, uh, he barred Christians from holding public offices, from holding positions of authority. He forbid Christians to teach grammar, rhetoric, philosophy. Uh, he built new pagan temples and uh, renovated old ones. But, uh, but Julian got frustrated when none of that was working. Uh, the church just kept growing. Christianity kept expanding. And so he, one day he wrote a, a friend of his who happened to be a pagan priest. And he says, we're never going to stop this Christian thing. And he writes this, he says, Nothing has contributed more to the progress of these Christians as their charity to strangers. Not only do they care for their own poor, but for ours as well. While pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans, which was a derogatory term for Christians, uh, the hated Galileans devoted themselves to works of charity and kindness. And so according uh, to the emperor of Rome, Julian, Christians throughout the empire were giving of themselves and of their resources to help 
to help those in need no matter who they were. When the Romans would cast old slaves out into the street to die, which was very common, Christians went out and cared for them, clothed them, housed them, fed them. In a society where infanticide was widespread and unwanted infants were tossed onto garbage heaps, Christians went out and collected those babies and raised them as their own. In 250 AD, when an outbreak of smallpox sent healthy people fleeing from the cities, uh, Carthage was particularly hit hard. Uh, It was Cyprian, who was a Christian leader, and and the Christians in that city who stayed behind and gave both personal and financial aid to the sick. Even those, even to those who formerly persecuted them, even their enemies. And I mean that 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 kind of practical, visible, undeniable loving kindness and outrageous generosity of Jesus' followers silenced their critics, gave credibility to the gospel, the true gospel, and ultimately changed the world. As one historian writes, most astounding to the outside pagan observer was the uh, extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of Christian communities through voluntary works of love. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in their temples. So, with, with that historical context, here's my question. How was, it, how, was, how was that possible? How was such selfless, sacrificial generosity among those early believers? I mean, what was that about? It seems to me the answer lies in an easily overlooked comment made here in Acts chapter 4, specifically at the end of verse 33, where we're told this. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And the Greek term that's translated powerfully here is the, is the term megas. It's where we get our term mega, you know, meaning great, big, powerful, strong. So literally the text reads this, that God's mega grace was at work in, uh, in them all. And so herein lies the key. It was the mega, strong, big, powerful, outrageous grace of God that made such outrageous Christian generosity possible. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that other religions don't demonstrate generosity, because many do. But all other religions center and revolve around moral performance. It's all about proving your goodness to God and hopefully, you know, hopefully earning your way into His favor, into His paradise, His nirvana, His heaven, or whatever. And so the act of giving uh, flows out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of fear, out of a sense of guilt. But Christianity alone teaches that it's not what you can do for God that makes the difference but what God and Jesus has done for you. God's favor isn't something you earn or buy. It's unmerited. It's a matter of grace. And when you, when you understand the truth of that, and when you, by faith, embrace Jesus and experience God's grace for yourself, man, it changes, it changes things. It changes you from the inside out, as we sang a few minutes ago. And so when it comes to the issue of generosity, for example, uh, grace revolutionizes your attitude and relationship to money and possessions. Notice verse 32. Um, uh, and, and how the text reports that all the believers were of one uh, in one mind and heart. Uh, no one claimed that any of the possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. Now, let's be honest about that. For us living in 21st century America, that is a weird economic concept. Because we generally operate uh, out of the notion that, you know, anything I have, the stuff that I own, you know, I worked hard for. Uh, I earned it. It's mine. Uh, I, don't, I don't have nearly enough. I don't have really what I want. I want more. I deserve more. And so the thought of giving any of it away, sharing uh, it with others, especially people we don't know, poor or otherwise, can be a rather irritating and touchy subject. But when the reality of God, God's grace takes hold of a person's mind and heart, as it did with the earliest followers of Jesus, you suddenly realize that uh, who we are and all that we, we have is a direct result of God's goodness and God's generosity to us. 
And the reality of grace starts to melt away greed and possessiveness. And we begin to see our resources not merely as you know, things to hoard and consume for ourselves, but things that can be used to help others and bring the news of God's grace to them. Uh, back, uh, uh, back in December during the Christmas season, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but Charles Dickens' Christmas, A Christmas Carol was on over and over and over and over again on, on a numerous, uh, numerous channels. I usually like to watch it like, at least once. And if you're familiar with the story uh, of Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, you know that he was, a, he was a mean, hard, greedy, selfish kind of guy, a businessman. And one Christmas Eve, he gets visited by a number of ghosts who uh, come to warn him of impending judgment. You guys are familiar with the story, right? And just so you know, when I was in fourth grade, I, um, I played the part of Jacob Marley uh, in the class production of A Christmas Carol. I was... Um, uh, Ebenezer's dead business partner who comes to visit him first. I still remember my lines. Whoa, Ebenezer! And I had to wear I had to wear a sheet and shake these chains and chains. And I, I was terrifying. Some kindergartners cried and had to leave the room. So, uh, but anyway, back to the story. Um, this parade of spirits uh, come uh, before Scrooge. They visit him and they show him how greedy he's been, and they they show him how people have suffered because of it. And they, they go on and they expose his, his miserable, wasted life. And they lead him to his lonely, isolated grave. And toward the end of the story, Scrooge falls in. And then what happens? He wakes up, right? And it's Christmas morning. And all of a sudden, his attitude is completely different. Why? He was given a second chance. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. So in a way, he had an experience of grace. Scrooge was dead, but suddenly alive. And so his view of life, his view of his, his money and his possessions was radically altered. And he was, he was grateful for everything. He, he was gleeful even. He starts finding ways to give away his money and to use his money to help others in need. Now, you do realize, right, that Scripture teaches the same thing. That if and when we experience God's mega grace, it'll change the way that we view our life and our money and our, our stuff, our possessions. The difference, however, between us and Scrooge is this. He only got a taste of grace, a mere second chance to go out and prove himself and do good and make things right. But in Jesus, all is made right by him. So you see, the true Christmas carol, the true Christmas story, isn't about one more chance for you or, and me to be good, uh, but it's about how Jesus came to be good for us, to pay the penalty for our for our sin, for our selfishness, for our greed, for our failures, and to, uh, to gift us life everlasting. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, Ray, look, I'm giving you one more chance, just one more chance to go prove yourself with good deeds. No. Jesus says, Ray, your doing will never, never get you there. I've done, I've done all the good for you. I've lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you deserve to die. In other words, with Jesus, we don't just get a small taste of grace we get the whole enchilada. And so that begs the question, shouldn't we as Christ followers be even more grateful and more gleeful and more generous than Scrooge was on his best day? And I would say, yeah, I think we should. Because the reality and the experience of God's grace revolutionizes our attitude towards our money and possessions. Has it rev revolutionized yours? I would suggest that for most of you, it has. And here's why. This past Advent season, uh, or throughout December, 
as many of you know, together as a church, we gave away just over $150,000. And we gave it to help free men, women, and children out of modern-day slavery and in the name of Jesus to bring clean water to those people who desperately need it in places like India where children die because they don't have it. In fact, what we did this week is we put together this infographic for you. Uh, Don't open it now because it came out a little bigger than we had hoped. And if you open it in close proximity to other human beings, there is a high risk of paper cut. So just we want to be safe. But uh, when you look at it later on, realize that um, this infographic is intended to, uh, to illustrate for you the, the, the level of out, outrageous generosity in terms of financial giving that you guys have demonstrated over the past three years or so. And, uh, and in fact, this doesn't even include our general operating expenses, our, our general operating fund, which is, uh, which is in, on the increase as well. This represents that which is above and beyond that. And uh, when I, I looked at this, and I looked at the numbers, and I looked at what, what we've been able to do, I'll tell you what, it's humbling. It's, it's inspiring. In some ways, it's mind-boggling. And I'm absolutely convinced that this, this kind of generosity, this kind of generosity doesn't flow out of guilt. It flows in response to grace. And it's very, very early church-like, i got to tell you. And I want to celebrate it. I want to say thank you. And I want to say way to go, church. And I want to say let's keep it up because this kind of love, this kind of outrageous generosity can and will help turn our community, uh, our culture, our world upside down. Since we're on the topic, here's something else grace does. Grace changes the procedure of our giving. I mean, think again, think again about Scrooge. Uh, think about how he was before his experience and after his experience. And if you know the whole story, you know that before it, uh, he was like many people today. His giving was, was passive. It was restrained, and it was limited, very limited. In other words, people had to come and beg from him, basically. His thinking was, hey, it's my stuff. It's my money. If somebody needs some help, they can come and ask, but I'm not going to go looking for ways to give my stuff away. And so if someone uh, came to him and was able to make him feel a little guilty, he might, he might help a little. But after his experience, Scrooge immediately looks for ways to give, and he starts he starts doing it in a, in a, in a big way, he, and he began to plan on how to, how to do more and more and more of it. Basically, his giving became active, outrageous, spontaneous, and at the same time, intentional. And what's interesting to me is if you study the topic of giving in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, this is how it's described. As God's people who are the recipients of His love and grace, we're encouraged to be actively and overly generous. We're called to be prepared to to share at any moment with someone in need with a special kind of offering or help. But also we're encouraged to intentionally plan on what we're going to give on a regular basis and and then do it. In the Old Testament, New Testament, the suggested starting point uh, would be like 10% of our income, which was referred to the tithe. But, But here's the deal. With Scrooge, for example, after his experience... There was no one around him begging him, pleading with him, or commanding him to give generously. He just started doing it because that's what even a little taste of grace does. Back in the first century, right around 56 A.D., there was a pretty severe famine in Palestine, and uh, there were people who were dying. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians living in the Greek city of Corinth asking them for help, basically asking them for some, some hunger relief aid. But he writes them this letter, and he asks them in a very, very interesting way. He says to them, look, I'm not commanding you to give. I'm just looking for the sincerity of your love. He says, I'm not commanding you, for you know, and the word there means to know, not just in your head, but in your heart, to know 
experientially. He says, for you know experientially the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What was Paul saying? He, well, at least, at very least, he was implying that there is never any need to lay a guilt trip on someone to be generous who knows, who truly knows the grace of Jesus. That out of grace, generosity flows actively, uh, outrageously, spontaneously, and intentionally. And then finally, uh, grace changes the focus of our giving. Now, uh, to be brutally honest about it, uh, if, if you've never understood or experienced God's grace, what's the point of giving? You ever think about that? Struggle with that. I mean, have you, uh, you guys have seen, you guys have seen TV telethons, right? Fundraisers. I remember uh, growing up watching Jerry Lewis's telethon every Labor Day for MS. It's still on. I'm not sure he's on it anymore, but sometimes I'll turn the channel and see PBS doing a fundraising program uh, to keep them on the air. And, that, and that's fine. It's, I don't have a problem with telethons. Those are good causes. But at some point along the way, if you watch long enough, the pitch, the pitch, the appeal goes, goes like this. If you give to our cause, you'll be able to look at yourself in the mirror tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm a good, caring, helpful human being. Some say that's manipulative. Maybe so. But it's also true, isn't it? Most people feel good about themselves when they give, when they, when they act in generosity. And that's okay. Giving is always a good thing, no matter who's doing it. But here's the deal. Humanitarian altruism only takes us so far. I mean, it's easy to burn out on generosity if it's just about me feeling good about myself. And yet that's the goal uh, when we give out of guilt to help us, to help me feel better about myself. And guilt is often used to, uh, mani- uh, to motivate generosity in the secular social paradigm. But, but grace-inspired giving is different. I mean, sure, I, I feel good when I give generously. Uh, Scripture affirms that that's going to be true. The writer of Proverbs in the Old Testament, for example, says a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will himself be or herself be refreshed. But grace giving isn't motivated by that, you see. It's not motivated by how I'm going to personally feel or personally benefit. Instead, it's all about how others are going to benefit temporally and eternally. Now, in our society today, people often look for ways to invest their money in things that will continue to bear fruit long after the end of their lives. And they'll, they'll put their money into foundations that do, that do good works for good reasons. But unfortunately, over time, foundations change according to uh, those people who are in charge of the foundation. So down the road, the values of the, in, the original investor may no longer be in line with the, the changes of the foundation. Uh, people put their money into schools and universities and the same exact thing happens. Harvard University, for example, was founded on the mission of educating and sending out across America Christian pastors and leaders. Did you realize that? For the first 100 years of the school's existence, an awful lot of people gave an awful lot of money to make that mission a reality. But of course, that's not, that's not the goal or mission of Harvard anymore. Things change. And so sure, you know, people can put money into foundations, into schools, into charities, in hopes that the investment will last and go towards something worthwhile. But one day, when teaching on giving and generosity, Jesus offered this advice to his followers. He said, look, use worldly wealth to gain, uh, f- to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal uh, dwellings. 
You, you understand what Jesus was saying there? He was saying, he was saying to his followers, he says, look, uh, invest and focus your resources in helping people in my name that they might come to know me. And then you're going to have a lot of friends in heaven. Or to put it another way, uh, Jesus says, and this kind of brings it a little closer to home for us, Jesus says, it is possible for many of you in this room to someday step into the halls of heaven and immediately have people rush up to you and say, hey, you know what, we've never met, but, but look, you took some of your money and, and, and you graciously invested it in a ministry or an initiative that taught us, that, that loved us, that served us, that rescued us, that, that fed us, that gave us something to drink, ultimately helped us understand the truth of Jesus and the good news of God's grace. You shared your stuff. And so here we are. Your earthly money may be gone, but your true wealth is standing right here in us. Thank you for your gracious and outrageous generosity. As we uh, have already established, Christians in the early church impacted uh, their neighborhoods, their, their culture, their empire, if you will. Uh, they changed their world forever. Even while facing, even while facing skepticism, at times hate and persecution. Why? Because God's, God's mega grace was at work in all of them. And I believe the same can happen with us. If you look at our culture today, we, let's face it, we have people, even leaders, who don't necessarily like Christianity. And so they are constantly looking for something or someone to criticize. But, but there's nothing that can silence angry accusations or even simple misconceptions faster than when we act with radical generosity toward each other and to those around us in need. When I, uh, when I hear people talk about the church today, today in America, I often hear comments like, uh, you know, we need more prayer, we need more preaching, we need more Bible study and classes, and maybe that's true. But unless all of that is balanced with genuine acts of love and outrageous generosity, our words are just words. Our claims are just claims. Our credibility and the credibility of Jesus remains in question. And here, you know, here's the reality. If we're not extending grace in our lives through outrageous giving and acts of generosity, or if generosity we do show is something we have to kind of muster up and we do it begrudgingly, or, or it happens because we feel guilty, then I might suggest that we haven't truly received and experienced the grace of God. We don't know it really. Because if and when we do, it changes everything. It changes us. And we see life and we see things and we see people differently. And we recognize that we ourselves are the undeserving recipients of divine grace. And that God God didn't just see us struggling and suffering and drowning in this world and say, hey, good luck, save yourselves. No, no, no. In Jesus, deity jumps into the struggle with us and suffers for us. God lovingly, generously, outrageously sacrifices himself to rescue us and give us life. In response to that reality, may we know, both in our heads and hearts, experientially know his mega grace. And may it, may it be at work in and through all of us. And may it continue to impact and change our community and our world forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize this morning that um, you are amazingly good to us in so many ways that we, we often overlook. You have given us life. You've given us family. You've given us friends. You've given us, by your good and gracious hands, 
all that we have. Forgive us those times when we, when we, when we act and cop attitudes of, of selfishness and um, avarice, believing that what we have, what we own, is, is just, just ours, it's mine. And I pray that as um, we consider the reality of your grace and your goodness to us, we would recognize, if we haven't already, that uh, there's so much more to life than just the stuff we have, just the money we have in the bank or in our pockets. There's something greater awaiting us. And the only thing that we can take with us to heaven is our friends and family. And so may we uh, become uh, even more so outrageously generous followers of Jesus with our lives, with our time, with our energy, and with our resources. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.